Hi guys, thanks for listening to this episode. We really appreciate all of the support and staying alongside the audio to now visual component of Beans Without Boundaries. Uh, going forward with the second season, we do have like an, a little bit of increase of cost. So we set up a little donation thing through Buy Me A Coffee. It's a little website that if you're willing to just splurge, there's an option for being able to just buy me a coffee. It also gives me a good idea if you really are enjoying our content and would like to help support and continue it. The link will be in the description underneath the YouTube video. It's also going to be in the description for Apple Podcasts and um, Spotify Podcasts as well. Uh, Whichever platform uh, would be greatly appreciated to just continue following along the journey and whatever you're willing to just kind of help with feedback, whether it's comments on the videos or just going on social media. Um, And if you're feeling typically generous, it'd be great to just throw a coffee my way. Thanks for listening in and until next time. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Seems like you had a rough day. It's been a rough, like, two weeks, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I've had a lot going on. Um, we moved kind of unexpectedly. And then my car, which is like a new car, it's a 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were driving today and like all of the electronics just stopped. Like we couldn't unlock the car. We couldn't. That's fucking sketchy. Yeah. Super scary. So we had to get a tow. It took three hours. Oh my God. Show up. And we've been at the dealership since 1230. So. Oh my God. And you wanted to still come on the show tonight? <laughs> yes, I need something good. You know what I mean? Well, hopefully I give you quality entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. I just, you know, uh, I, I, I love coffee. I like talking about coffee. And I've been talking about cars all day, which yeah. is not my passion so <laughs> if there's one thing i don't know shit about it's definitely cars i know i know enough enough to like have those conversations without getting like screwed over and that's the only reason mm-hmm. that i have those not like i know what i do is because i was like i i refuse to be screwed over in a dealership um valid even my husband just like took a back seat to everything today while i was like haggling them about everything so hopefully it got worked out then yeah yeah it's fine um cars fixed my issue was that i was like this car is only you know two and a half years old shouldn't be having these problems yeah so like this has already happened it has two open recalls um it shakes when it gets up to like anything over 50 i want a new car and i don't want to pay more than what i'm paying now and i want something that is reliable yeah and um they just kept trying to like get me either in a worse vehicle or um in a nicer vehicle that was like twice the cost and i'm like no 
that's absolutely not, they were very upset with me because I wasn't like giving in to their right sales tactics. But you know, it's just it's just been a, it's been a day of haggling and frustration and honestly talking about coffee is like a it's a relief. So I'm happy to be here. I'm sorry. Thank you for listening. To yeah, my- that's fine. No, I'm here. This is sort of like a therapy podcast. I feel like it's slowly turning into, which I love because I just love hearing people's backstories. I had um, an interview yesterday and I was like, hey, thanks for the therapy session. And he was like, same. It's just, <laughs> what it I was going to say, I think a lot of coffee always is like, it's a good blank field to just like either catch up, dish out, or like emotionally release. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm very like, so uh, my husband had never watched anything Anthony Bourdain before. And Anthony Bourdain, like I'm watching it now and I'm like, love him. Formed so much of who I am. Yeah. And I don't even think I realized it. Like he's one of the only, and and I don't mean this callously, but he's one of the only like celebrity deaths that like still just Mm -hmm. like, Ooh, it hurts, you know? So I was like, we're going to watch it starting. We're going to watch No Reservations starting from the beginning. You have to, he is a cultural icon. Yeah. He he changed the way that we talk about food Mm -hmm. and look at food. And um, I think he opened the eyes to the American public about how to travel in a respectful manner and how to experience other cultures, you know? And I'm like, and now I'm like a coffee road. Like I'm, I, I did fall in line in some way with like his romanticized version of the world. But anyways, watching it, I was just like, um, I, I think I still kind of buy into the, the coffee shop, and coffee world of like the nineties, you know, of that, like it, people weren't plugged in. Yeah. You know, it was, it was open. Everyone's talking You're pseudo intellectuals, you know, sitting around drinking espressos and like talking about Voltaire and, you know, it's just, <laughs> um, I think it's natural that it's led to this generation. It being about therapy or it being more of a therapy because mm-hmm. that's what we need now. Um, because we, we've seen some shit. How, how much am I allowed to cuss here? By the way? Oh, you're, you're, it's a, it's a sailor ship. Go for it. Okay. Fantastic. I am <laughs> a spawn of a sailor. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah you and me both trust me i wanted the show to definitely just be like a free-for-all for people to just come in just let shit loose and just like be able to like talk mm-hmm. like originally the idea was to talk more on like controversial subjects which at the end of the podcast we usually do have a segment for but for the most mm-hmm. part it's just like unsolicited information and just like kind of letting shit fly well, we can just make this one the like anthony bourdain fandom if you want here's the thing i'm not even mad at that i remember when roadrunner came out first and i was like uh and i was with somebody at the time who's also a sous chef so we like i, I was very much involved in a lot of the and i worked oh. behind the scenes so i worked like 
on the line and as a, on dish. Mm. So like watching that show, it resonated with me on a whole different level. We watched No Reservations from the beginning to the top, and it was just like, yeah, I think a lot of his ethics and his morals, uh, and just being someone of color and having a lot of that, like food being a huge part of our culture, like it's just like it's nice to see that kind of open up for other people and, and the way he went about it. It's inspired me to go to places that I never thought I'd want to go. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, I, I'm on the same page. I've always loved his philosophy on life and the approach to um, inviting yourself into other people's heritage and cultures and understanding the value of how that lies with cuisine. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, that's, like, so much of th- Those were his ethos, mm-hmm. you know? Um you know, I was telling my husband, I was like, every episode he like, it's not just about food. Like he goes and he does things that are like, I was like, there are episodes. I don't know if it was no reservations or if it was another one of like, uh, cause he, you know, he had a few, yeah. but there was one where like cameras weren't allowed. It was a, a dinner party in somebody's home mm-hmm. and he was like, we can't show you this because it's illegal. But like, you know, my little brain was like, and I may have just wanted this to be the case, but context clues led me to believe that it was human. And I'm just like, this, I, I just, I don't know. I, I just adore the, the, the man and his ability to find his way into, um, like he's not outside of the mainstream you know like we just we're on season one like episode five or six or something yeah. you know he like went to malaysia and took like a three-hour drive and then a three-hour boat ride or like a six-hour boat ride mm-hmm. into this like indigenous yeah. park and is like with them and like you know it's like one of he, my favorite he, things that he would do too is that he made it a job to, like, do the work. It wasn't like, yeah. let me just sit here and eat these people's food and talk about how great it is. He's like, so how do I fish for this at the bottom of the sea with no equipment, a spear, and then lack of, like, good communication guidance? And I'm like, wild. Yeah, and and did so with, like, um, a a sense of integrity and humbleness that so many people don't have. Yeah. You know, like he went into it being like, I'm a lanky fucking New Yorker who smokes 200 cigarettes a day. I have no business doing this shit. Yeah. Uh, I have more alcohol in my system than I have outdoorsmen. <laughs> like we're gonna, we're gonna rough this one out, but like, by all means, show me, I want to, you know, mm-hmm. it was he participated in any way that he could. Um, and he definitely straddled the line of like, and, and I, I don't think that there was much appropriation at all, but I think that he, he, he really knew how to straddle that line of like, um, participating in somebody's culture mm-hmm. while still respecting it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think. And, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, you're good. I was just going to piggyback off that and say. A lot of it came from the fact that his his aura in itself was always so authentic. Like, he never put yeah. on a persona. He never tried to be this white savior complex. Like, he never tried to act like he could teach these people things that could, like, change the way they 
create their food. He always came with it. And even if it was stuff that was so like almost medieval, like a practice in the cuisine of art and like him having such an extensive practice in different ways. Like he always just participated in a way where it was non-negotiable. Like he's like, whatever you need, I'm here. Like I'll try my best to just like be a part of the crew, part of the ship, part of the crew. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, yeah, I find it funny though. (laughs) A lot of this, this talk about Anthony Bourdain and, and the earnestness and the humbleness and this like strong sense of integrity with staying to the root of whatever they're creating despite traveling to so many different countries a lot of this can actually kind of reflect in the coffee world yeah yeah absolutely Uh, you know as i've been watching the show i have changed one of my like one of my questions that you know you ask to like get to know people which is like if if you could have a like one dinner with anybody dead or alive who would it be Mm mm-hmm I would choose Anthony Bourdain and, and not yeah. because I think I have a fantastic meal, but because I like envision the conversation about how to be a participant in an industry that is so exploitative to so many people um, and how to be a white American participating in this, right. you know, um, because I just think that he so much knowledge mm-hmm. him so much um like emotional knowledge went with him you know um but yeah I, I i agree i think that there's like a level of um appropriation that happens and exploitation that happens mm-hmm. uh, throughout coffee and it's it's not ex- I, the u.s is not exempt to that right like we see baristas and production staff you know tons of people get underpaid top to bottom right Right. but um you know we definitely have a little more privilege here because we're the ones who set the price yeah i think um this show when i started i had absolutely no real knowledge on the production industry um and i didn't know what what line i was tackling on this subject Mm -hmm. to so the more the the guests have come and really educated me the more i'm feeling like there is so much um level of control that we have that predates so many years of like colonial colonialization and suppression of a lot of these coffee producing countries um that haven't really progressed forward And we still kind of benefit from their products and like the biggest thing that I always enjoyed about like tying back to Anthony Bourdain was the story behind everything. Mm -hmm. Um, The story behind the people, the story behind the culture, Um, being a person who has a lot of emphasis on storytelling in her own culture. Like I only ever want to hear people's stories. So like the more people have come on the show and and told me their stories and their ties towards coffee and the culture and the practice and what it's meant for them and their people and the lineage and the community. It's just, it's validating. Um, And it also helps me tackle different areas of my life, like how Anthony Bourdain would have done. So yeah, I feel like in general, 
I'm trying my best to kind of have people that are extremely diverse in different fields of the areas in coffee, along with ethnic backgrounds and um, identity backgrounds to be able to come and ex- basically tell their their ties and their stories. Yeah, I think. Let's rewind, because, man, I just went head first into Anthony Bourdain, right? Um, yeah, we both did, though. Yeah, yeah, you let me. <laughs> I didn't stop you is the difference. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm in like my makeshift soon-to-be office that is like there's boxes still <laughs> packed and I'm in a chair using my knees as a desk. It's fantastic. So excuse that. Improvisation. Um, but um, so uh, I guess, okay, a couple questions. Yeah, go for it. Your service industry. I have worked various positions in the service industry. Okay. Primarily back to house? Front and back. Front and back. And middle. What was, ooh, what's middle? Expo. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So I've, I've been hosted. I started off as a hostess, then I did serving and then I did bartending and then I did, um, I worked on the line. I worked on dish and then I did expo as my last service industry job. Mm, I did expo for a while, but like, front of house expo um there was kitchen expo front of house expo then front of house or sorry kitchen expo was chef right so it was like chef and then mm-hmm. front of house expo um i did that for a long time i really liked it i'm good at like organization um, oh i loved doing expo because i loved yelling at servers <laughs> motherfuckers chef kind of let me like run the show too so he just like he was more like keeping shit in line during service versus like actually being behind yeah uh random question this is a step again i'm sorry i'm gonna do this a few times because i love talking to industry people what does the bear do to you when you watch it does it validate you or does it traumatize you is there a bear that i'm missing that I, I what is this bear the bear of the show have you seen it no oh fuck okay <laughs> i'm guessing this is a show about the service industry Ooh, girl girl yeah pronouns yeah what are your pronouns whatever you want to call me okay yeah. all right i'm sorry no you're uh, good i'm sorry to assume um mine are she they so i either or whatever mm-hmm. thing um gotcha. i don't care as long as not he, him, like, I don't know. No, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Anything but man. <laughs> um, but, uh, okay. Yes. The bear is service industry and service industry folks. It does one or one of two things to them. It's yeah. either extremely traumatizing because it's like, did you ever watch Uncut Gems? Uncut Gems. Um, yeah (laughs) and touch arms um okay it has that uh fast pace oh no uncut gems in general anxiety inducing yes okay so it's that but service industry so it's what your server nightmares are in a show um but it doesn't at first i was really worried that it was romanticizing the angry chef um because that's a thing and like i've dealt i've had 
literal plates of food thrown at my face during service by chefs. I've been yelled at. I've been called names. Um, you know, it's just, it's rough out there. Right. And I don't, I don't like the romanticization of that. And I think that it's, um, extremely prevalent. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it happens in coffee too. Roasters, like old school roasters can be the same way. Um, but yeah, the bear shows you that, but I think it does a really beautiful way of exposing it, like showing it to you in a very crude way that does not romanticize that. Um, and although you do see this person gaining success, um, it, it kind of shows you all the different facets, right? Mm-hmm. It shows you how his his actions affect his employees and the people around him. And um, for me, I felt it was very validating because I'm watching with my husband who's never worked um, in the service industry. Service industry. Yeah. yeah. And so being able to be like, yes, that that feeling that you have that tightness in your chest, Mm -hmm. that's the tightness that servers and back of house folks live with all day, every day. I feel like if I was to watch that show, I'd probably just be screaming at the TV the whole time. Probably. I'd be like, Oh my God, that's exactly what the fuck it's like. And it's because it is very accurate. They do a very, very good job of like getting to like the core of the service industry, which is a hard thing to do. I feel like there's so many nuances. Yeah, I think the service industry is, it's a soap opera of itself, no matter what area of the industry you work in. Every shift, too. It's not the same. I can work work a double, right? And it's like, one double was a vibe, and or one part of the double was a vibe, and then the other part of the shift was a totally different vibe. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, it's the, you're dealing with different personalities drama people it's like the only job one of the not i'm not gonna say the only one of the very few jobs that like you every single day is 100 percent unexpected yeah you know like there's there's no way to predict a single thing that's going to happen other than i will say this where you're going to show up I will say this too. I think that what's not talked about too, I think I've, I don't know if it's just the fact that my age is coming through here, but I've worked in the service industry for so many years, met so many amazing and horrible people. And then I realized when I stopped working in the service industry, how much that amount of high level stress and multitasking has burnt me the fuck out. The, yeah. the level of capability I have anymore is non-existent. Like I don't have that energy capacity to be doing what I was doing when I was younger. Um, yeah. And it's like, it's, a, it's affected a lot of what kind of like drives me for job searching after that. Absolutely. I mean, I think when you step away from it and I'm, I'm in the same position, once you, once you step away from it, after you do it for so long mm-hmm. and you only get a server nightmare like once a month, you know, which I still have them about once a month. <laughs> I still get them. Um, you kind of, you realize, oh, it doesn't have to be like this, you know, and how separated you are like that separation, you know, when you're in it, you don't really, but then you, you pull yourself out and it's, it's really insane how much stress you undergo. I think it's honestly Just, trauma. 
Like, I think that, like, it doesn't have to be in a way where it's threatening your livelihood, depending on your work situation. Some people have those kind of dynamics, sadly, in their work industries. But, like, I think in general, it's a different form of trauma on the body. It's not a conscious thing. I think it's subconscious that comes out over periods of time. But I think a lot of the time it's a trauma response and... Um, because it's so normalized in society that service industries have it hard and, and like, like people that work. And in nobody's the- like trying to make it better because right. it's like, Oh, that's the way it is. Yeah. That's just- and then a lot on top of that, I've had a lot of substance abuse, abuse issues. And, um, <laughs> that's those- so normal in the service industry too. Exactly. Cigarettes, like, nobody- drugs, alcohol. On the shift, off the shift. I'm sobering up. People are like, oh, like for a couple weeks for like a detox. I'm like, no, like I have a problem. And they're like, bitch, I was drinking with you last week. Like, what are you talking about? It's like, yeah, you don't notice because you're probably also an alcoholic. Like toxic. It's a toxic, like almost like serpent. Like I feel like half the time you want to better yourself and then you can't because no one else outside of you who is that environment wants to do it themselves either. So you kind of lose hope because that discouragement's not helping you. And then it's a vicious cycle. You keep like having these moments, like you'll catch yourself in the abuse too. be like, I don't want to fucking be doing this. Why am I doing this? And then you step away and then you're like, okay, cool. I think I'm doing okay. But then people are going to draw you back rather than Mm -hmm. try to uplift you. I think in general, there are some good people in the service industry where I have had, I worked in a Italian restaurant at one point serving and I met my, my best friend of all time through that. And we had our toxic runs, but like to this point now, that friendship has been solidified over 10 years. Like there are some people you'll find that like you'll trauma bond and then that's it. And then you you have an established friendship. There are some people that you're like, I never want to see this person again in my life. It's, it's like such a dynamic where it's like high highs and low lows. There's no mediums. And if the mediums are there, you're seeking that thrill of the high highs again. So it's just like this constant, whirlpool of fuckery and you're just so it's just exhausting and i think that i think that like outside of the restaurant industry this also applies to working in coffee like yeah i've seen really similar instances working in restaurants like food restaurants versus working just in cafes where those lines still can be pretty blurred i think half the time the relationships you make with baristas are a lot more toxic sometimes than servers because servers it's on the clock and then it's off the clock but baristas it's like an emotional connection you continuously make because all you have is coffee you don't have like this this like level of the toxicity of dealing with high different like family environments or dealing with like one-on-ones with customers it's 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 like a different like you're mostly surrounded by the baristas versus the people you're serving right so it's like you're behind the counter you mm -hmm. know yeah yeah um so i it's been a while since i've worked front of house in the coffee world right like i've been kind of behind the scenes for some time Um, but I can definitely agree with that. And I don't think there's a single like barista who I like have maintained, um, um, and you know, when we were there, when we were together working together and stuff, it was like, you know, a pretty inseparable 
bond. But um, I also, I noticed too that um, I was harassed more by customers as a barista than I was as a server, which is a unexpected thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's not alcohol involved, right? right. Uh, that's not to say I haven't been harassed as a server because that has happened plenty of times. Um, but I mean, we're talking like stalker level stuff because I, I think there's this like romantic romanticization. I keep tripping up on that word. Romanticization. Yeah. C's and Z's together are not fun to pronounce for the English language. Yeah, no, it was not meant for my tongue. Um, <laughs> All that to say, I met my husband because I was his barista. So <laughs> I have so much room to talk I think here. I will piggyback off of what you're saying. And I think I can kind of guess as to why that is the case. The thing about food is the food aspect, being a server, you're not actually making it. You're delivering it. You're delivering mm-hmm. an experience as a server. As a mm-hmm. barista, you're creating you're the, product the product and you're delivering it. It's an intimate mm-hmm. process. And then you're, yeah. you're, you're basically following the guideline of the customer. What is it that you would like? I can do that for you. Let me perform right. that act. Let me talk to you while I perform that act. I pr- deliver That's you the act. Right. I'll see you tomorrow. Time. And then it's a continuous process. You're building a continuously intimate relationship with a customer. So yeah. it can be a little bit more like the customer comes back in and they have something to look forward to. Where's my barista? Why isn't my barista here? Because they're not going to give me that experience if I talk to somebody else. And then they have this like slight dependency dependency on you. And that in is in itself is a burden. I've had, when I worked as a barista people, it's a compliment. And then it's also stifling at the same time where people are like, well, I want Elena to make my drink. Why isn't Elena here? And I'm like, well, Everyone else is going to make it the same fucking way. <laughs> like, yeah. like, also, I don't make the schedule, so. Right. <laughs> but that would be my guess as to why, like, a lot of baristas feel, like, this sense of, like, it's a creepy thing where, especially the age-dependent, like, thing mm-hmm. factor in it. Um, yeah. Like, at what age is it okay to be doing that? At what age is it not okay? Like, at what point is it just, like, you need to just fall in line that this is... This isn't um, this isn't ninety day fiance. We're not testing the waters, and then you'll put in a contract, and we're set. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I haven't really thought about it like that before, but you're absolutely right that you know you're you are giving this person something that um, you made as well, and that that is there's there are less barriers um, where if somebody asks for something. You know, like they want that steak well done. I can't be like, I'm sorry, chef said that that's going to compromise the integrity of the dish. That's not. I've actually worked at restaurants that did that too. Yeah, I love that. Same. I'm like, don't eat a fucking steak well done, bro. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're not going to put ketchup on that. Sorry. That would compromise (laughs) the integrity of the dish. Uh, (laughs) That was like my favorite way. And it's like. Sometimes I hate, like, I realize that I'm a cog in the gentrification machine, the pretension machine. Like, you know, it's like, I get it. But at the same time, it's just like, you know. So let me ask you this then. Okay. If you feel that way towards food, how would you feel that way towards coffee? 
Ooh, um, well, I think I feel like, uh, especially with somebody who has a very vast background working in it, I'm actually mm -hmm. really curious to know um, how that would be applied to to the coffee world. Well, I mean, I think coffee shops are some often joke to be like the first indicators of a like neighborhood being gentrified. And it's true, right? You go into a neighborhood that's you know, lower income and that first hip little coffee shop pops up and that's when things kind of start blowing up, right? It's when all the hipsters start moving in and raising property value and, you know, they bring businesses in that attract that, which then attracts people who are willing to uh, buy properties level them put up new houses and, and coffee directly contributes to not just colonization at origin but also um gentrification here in the states um <laughs> and this is not something that i'm like super proud to admit but it's i think um the only way I found to deal with it is to a work back of house. Not that that's contributing less, yeah. um, but it, it, it does feel as though you have a little more um, ability to give dignity to the products that were worked so hard to bring to you. Right. Like as a roaster, it's like, so many people put their hands on this product. Yeah. I would like to treat it with the equal amount of respect. Right. Uh, that I believe it deserves. Um, and I also feel like I, I, I get to have those like blinders a little bit. And like I said, this is not something I'm like super proud to admit, but you know, working back of house, it's really, it's, it's easier to, separate yourself from how you're doing that mm -hmm. um how you're a part of an industry that's doing that not that we're directly responsible right like i'm just a person who's like trying to make it month to month um it's the business owner's decision to buy property in an area that they shouldn't be buying property in at that you know Right. That's, that's not a decision that I get to make. Right. Um, I'm just a person trying to also make money. Um, but so not to always put the, the weight of gentrification on those who are also struggling to just like make it is my point, you know, um, like just how we can't be sitting here talking shit to consumers about recycling and taking on the entire burden of what ultimately is these huge corporations job. They should be the right. ones saying better, you know, but whatever. Anyways, you get what I'm saying. Um, coffee's tough. And I've had to deal with that a lot um, because I've also, you know, I've worked for places where I don't have a say in what, what green is being bought and what deals, what contracts are being written for right. that green coffee um actually in most places i haven't had 
much of a say because I've never been director of coffee. I've never been green buyer. Neither of those titles I've ever held. Have I worked with those people and helped them in sourcing? Sure. Um, but I've never personally had that responsibility. So a, I'm incapable of saying, um, like why I, you know, would do it one way. And it's hard to say that when you're not actually in that person's position. I do believe that I would stick to my ethics because I tend to be pretty strong in those and I stand by things pretty strongly. Um, but, um, it does hurt to know that the company you're working for is like nickel and diming your importers and your farmers, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what do you do about that? There's very little that you can do. It feels like, um, and I'd actually be like super interested in hearing what other people in the industry who aren't green buyers or directors of coffee, like what they're doing right. personally, other than just trying to bring as much dignity to the product as possible, you know? And that's just how I see, how I've seen my role. Um, and how can I impact uh, my immediate team members, right? How can I make sure the quality of life of the people that I manage or the people who I work with are in a good place because there's only so much reach can have, you know, right. but um, it does hurt. It hurts to like, it hurts to see. It hurts to know that there's so little a singular person can do. Um, I try to be as involved as I can with people doing big things. I'm uh, on the board of directors for Color of Coffee Collective, um, which helps bring education to um, people who otherwise wouldn't have access to coffee education um, by offering free classes, super affordable, um, like entry fees to like expos and stuff. And um, being able to like help in that definitely makes me feel better. I will say too, um, for somebody who... It's sort of like the Swiss Army knife of the place that I work. Um, so I do literally everything um, from sourcing and buying and, and building those relationships to roasting and being a barista also. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so um, you're doing that now. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> um, they paying you okay? <laughs> you can't say on this podcast. They probably listen to it, don't they? Yeah. But... um. That. <laughs> it's okay uh, i don't really fucking care i don't really think the, the owner of the shop even listens to my podcast um but like it's it's a really weird position to be in because i think it gets like even more complicated it gets so much more complicated when you're able to do green buying because then it's like what you're going to do is going to impact more people versus like if you're just roasting and profiling and like right. working mostly with baristas, you're only impacting the, the community you have in front of you versus like what I'm doing would be impacting the people who it actually matters to impact. No offense, yeah. um, because people here are going to benefit from whatever we decide to bring into the States. We always do. Right. But right. like, and that's the thing too, right? Is like you're bringing the coffee in 
you're going to sell it, you know, and maybe you sit on it. That happens. You know, there's dead stock that sits in every roaster I've ever worked for, but that's a really good point that I hadn't thought about, you know, that it's like, it's going to benefit people on this end. Regardless. The last person who was on the episode before you, her name is Andrea. And she was talking about how roasters, she gave really good pointers actually that like, I would recommend to listen to the episode and a lot of the things from what she could recommend roasters to do when working Mm -hmm. with producers, if they have a chance or like what would be best to honor the product and the practices. And a lot of it came down to negotiating terms, which is mostly a green coffee buying thing. But a lot of the time it's just like doing your best to do profiling and doing sample roasting and doing the cupping, grading it, and delivering that information more readily for the importers or if you're direct trade. That gives those people direct feedback to what they're working with, how they can improve, giving them pointers, being able to show how you've roasted things and informing the the importers and if they're communicative with of of course whoever sources for you if they're communicative with the producers directly that does a lot for the people in origin because a lot of the time they just don't have the information they don't have the way of communicating with us roasters they don't have the way of communicating with the buyers especially if they're going through a, a larger importer right um but half the time when i'm doing it from the front of the house perspective the most that I can do is one, I created this podcast. <laughs> and then two, um, when I'm working with like general people, and I, I work in the Midwest, mind you, which are, they're not like that big on the third wave stuff, right? <laughs> We're talking dark roasts and like pumps of everything cream, whipped cream, sugars, sugar, oh. sugars. It's a lot harder to kind of combat that mentality when they're just like, well, I don't give a shit about any of this. And I'm like, you got to realize this isn't just a product for us to enjoy. This is stuff that you learn the story. You start to want to be a part of it. Like it started Mm -hmm. off that way. We recruited somebody recently who was an association of somebody else who worked with us and then slowly just started showing up. The more we started like educating the more i started showing just like roasting in general because i don't gatekeep roasting i think that is a fucking bullshit thing in itself is this gatekept no, community thinking. bullshit that the production industry does bailey and i talked about this in the first episode actually yeah um, uh, i i don't think i have anything to add to that other than like i just yes <laughs> <laughs> you just agree I, I just agree and i will say that with color of coffee like We've put on several like free roasting class events. Just like come in. We've got roasters lined up ready to tell you how they do it, you know? And it's also like it's not that complicated. It's really not. Like roasting's just like complicated. Even if you just production roast, if you're not profile roasting, that's a little bit more experiments, but like production roast, you follow the curve, you go. That's it. Like, yeah. it's really Especially not that if you're like on a loring or something it's just like click click, click yeah click, click, i click, <laughs> click, click. <laughs> yeah for the most part like i work on a u.s roaster core so mm-hmm. like i'm like kind of by it but i'm kind of not but for the most part it's pretty consistent i've gotten i've been roasting for over a year and a half two years now so it's just like whatever but like a lot of the like that new person is just like 
it was really heartwarming because I like was training him today. And he's just like, I'm going to watch YouTube stuff about coffee stuff because I'm actually excited. And I'm just like, see, it starts off this way. Like you got to like genuinely have this interest to show people. And I think that passion is infectious. I think for the most part, if you care about what you do and you care about wanting people to genuinely understand and know it and you don't come from a lot of what Anthony Bourdain taught me, you don't come from this like level of pretentiousness, this level of intimidation, you bring it to a level where it's easily digestible. Most of the people will gladly partake in wanting to learn more. Like I had a customer and I explained honey process. One sample of the the facet of that exists in the coffee production world. And then we just start talking more about different processes. Like it starts off small. So like the most that you can do, I think, is just pass that information on to baristas. Try to inspire the baristas. As soon as you inspire baristas, I feel like that's the most that they can do is that they start to love what they do despite the chaos that is working as a barista. They pass that shit on to their customers. And I think that it just like that just where it starts. That's the, that would be my advice. But what do I know? Yeah, yeah do I know? absolutely. Um, one of the, so, I mean, just like, a, I guess a little bit of background here. Um, the, the thing that I've found is I've worked in a lot of facets in coffee. And the thing that I found that I'm the most passionate about, and I feel like I have, um, is it's the most fulfilling to me and not just, because of personal reasons, which it is personally, but it it also like satisfies this thing in me that needs to know that I'm positively affecting other people, right? Like that's, that's fulfilling for me. Fulfilling is not just like accomplishing a hard day's work, which is also very fulfilling, but, um, you know, doing production when you're like bagging coffee and you can like see how much you like, you, you see the amount that you did in a day and it's like so satisfying. Mm-hmm. But the most, the most satisfying thing for me um, is, you know, being able to curate these events, to find other people who are like-minded in their um, willingness to share knowledge yeah, and bring them together and to have people come in at any tier like we at color of coffee like pretty much um we we kind of like talk about ourselves as like we're non-coffee people talking about coffee you know like i'm one of the only coffee people on the team at color of coffee um and they, they kind of brought me on for that re- that reason, but it's, it's because we want our reach to be consumers. We want our reach to be baristas and professionals and uh, people who are looking to open shops and don't know where to start or open roasteries and don't know where to start. We want people to come in um, without as many obstacles, but we also want them to be met with people who are, are passionate and people who are kind and try to be as equitable as possible in the positions that they are in. Right. And it's hard to find people like that. Um, when you're in an industry that's dominated by a lot of gatekeeping, but in my time here, I've, I've, I've found them, 
you know, bits and pieces, just like you've, you're finding people, you know, and Mm -hmm. you being able to bring these people in and like, uh, give them the, the vocabulary and the words and the things to, to operate in a space, um, that they feel isn't for them. Right. Like I feel like coffee doesn't feel like it's for anybody until you are just get like, you just force yourself into it. Right. It's a pretty like closed off, uh, industry in terms of like knowledge and everything. Um, you know, for, I actually find that really interesting because I've had that mostly with like, how do I word this? I've, when I speak to producers and when I speak to like people mostly from those coffee origins, I have absolutely no problem integrating. And I don't know what it is. I think it's, it's just different. But when I try to integrate with people who like are from SCA or, um, sorry, uh, this is a controversial podcast. I don't give a shit. Um, uh, no, I thought about like literally branding my entire consulting and education business as just like, fuck the FCA. Yeah. I'm like, just like, like, when, when I, when I talk to a lot of like, the more it gets into the semantics that is SCA and the protocols and the systems and the grading and all this other shit, when it becomes so like scrutinized and you're, you're just ripping apart a whole practice it's, it's not warm anymore. You know, it's not a warm industry to be in. You're, you're stripping a lot of the essence that is humanity that comes from the process of coffee. It is a relationship building essence of a, a being. It's a thing. It's like, there are people, indigenous people from Colombia that look at coffee and it's the mother nature. It's, it's born from her. And then there are people you speak and it's like, these are things that are building communities. They're uplifting people. They're giving opportunity they're contributing right, the and like, then you go back to it's not specialty yeah like, it's just like a lot of the time i i try my best to not make coffee just a product and i think it's like working with um it's really interesting working with business owners um when it comes to being in a coffee shop environment how much they they just don't give a fuck yeah yeah same for um I worked for a, you know, roaster cafe company. I will not name the one that I worked for because it is very well known. Um, and you can only burn so many bridges before you're out of a job for good. <laughs> I'm not judging you for not saying it. <laughs> okay. um, but these, this company they were they were not coffee people they made um basically a retirement's worth of money by the like the age of 40 and thought let's open a cafe had multi-million dollar build outs two cafes and a roastery within a couple of years jesus um, which is you know unheard of right, right. coffee industry is like people are like home roasting for 20 years and then maybe they like get into like a small store, you know, that's like the kind of thing we're used to hearing about, but man, they just dove into the scene. The people who were doing their marketing also did the marketing for Mick cafe. There was money involved (laughs) y'all. Is that to say that their coffee is not great? No, it is 
good coffee, right? Like they, the coffee is good, but they put themselves through every single SCA course in the very beginning. And so they had that kind of mentality, right? Mm. And so, um, their, their kind of their, um, their gimmick was that some of their, some portion of the money spent on a bag went towards a different charity. And, um, I think it was this thing to like, I, I don't even think truthfully, I don't even think it was to offset guilt. I think it was truly virtue signaling. Um, because when you're seeing behind the scenes, like what's happening and the exploitation of even their own workers, um, you know, it's just at the end of the day, business owners are business owners. Right. And, um, to be a successful business owner in the United States and much of the world is to be a capitalist. Right. And I've even personally experienced people who I would say I believe were very anti-capitalist very recently through owning a business become very capitalist. And it's, uh, it's, it's tough, you know, because I'm not a like business owner. I have a sole proprietorship. I wouldn't call that, you know, like I don't manage employees or anything like that. Um, I don't hand out W2s. I don't have to track stuff like that, but it's just so hard to understand how doing that can make a person so immune to the 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 plight of humanity and sustainable living across the board you know it's tough it's it's tough and it's like really hard working so closely with business owners like you said like they're at the end of the day it's like what's the roi it's like i don't know i just would really like to not work 60 hours this week. So, (laughs) right. Yeah. I think God, it's toxic. That's messy. Yeah. I'm just like, that's all I got. Like, I don't know how to even divulge into that, but it's just, I, it's, it's really hard. And I'm sorry. I, one thought, one thought here. Um, people are always asking me, I say this like humble brag. People are <laughs> always asking me. A lot of people close to me, when they find me in a tough um, like work position, because they, they see the, like the merits that I have and the experience that I have people who aren't in the coffee industry. Right. Right. Um, they're like, well, you know, why don't you just start your own business? Why don't you just this? And it's like, I I really have zero interest yeah. in participating in, in the, the economy yeah. that I would have to participate in. And that's, that's just what it comes down to. It's not that I'm incapable of running a roastery. I've done it. You know, it's not that I'm incapable of uh, building out a production facility. I can do that. 
I don't want to participate in the economy as it is, because I, I think that there are very, very few people who can successfully run companies without selling their souls in a way. Like I just, yeah, I feel like the villain behind that is the original um, story of how I think shops start. That's like the purest form. It's from whether they make it or they don't is when the, the transformation of this heroine either turns into the antagonist or the protagonist. Um, so like I, I completely understand why you wouldn't want to. I think it would change your relationship to your viewing of coffee. I think it would change your relationship with working with people. I think it would change your relationship with how you interact with coffee shops, businesses, how you, who you contribute and spend money with. Like, I think it's just people, I think they like the idea of like, you can be an entrepreneur. You can do anything. You can make a brand. You can start a legacy. Yeah. Yeah. No one talks about everything that goes into it. Who you got to work with, how much you have to sacrifice, compromise, hire people that you probably won't fucking like. And then if you're lucky, you have a good business partnership. But half the time, that's not the case. Yeah. Well, half the time I'd save them. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like it's it becomes a toxicity of like, how much is your life your life anymore? Your life is your job. Your job is your your world. Your world is no longer you can't compartmentalize nothing. Right. And I'm saying right. this from somebody who doesn't own a business. Mm. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I, I'm actually... Re- owning businesses, so let's just full disclaimer at the beginning of this podcast. Yeah. Everything there is about owning businesses and the, the psyches of those who mm-hmm. own businesses, clearly. <laughs> what, what made you want to start what you do now? Well... It was uh, just like everything in life up to this point. Um, unfortunately, was not like a planned thing, and you know, I, I we're being honest here, and so you know, I feel the need to be honest, and it's it's not something that. I think is normal or traditional for people to do, but I'm not, I'm not successful right now in what I'm doing. I did just start. Um, but education is what's most important to me. And I found that through, um, so I was working as a roaster for Atlas coffee club. And, um, I, my husband and I were actively trying to get pregnant and I did get pregnant. And so I went to, um, my boss and I was basically like, Hey, I'm pregnant. I'm not going to be able to roast like this forever. Um, at the time I was roasting on two 70 kilo machines. Jesus. So, so I was just like a glorified, like green mover at that point. 
but you know, I'm, I'm forklifting, I'm climbing pallet racks. I'm doing all kinds of strenuous physical work. Yeah, it, it is. And it's like at nine months pregnant, I can't be like getting OSHA violations. It's just not like the best, not the best look. Um, so, um, basically told him immediately, it was like, can we start a plan for like what? what we're going to do. Uh, there was a customer service team. This is a, a subscription company. Mm-hmm. So they don't like sell retail or wholesale, right? It's, it's just to people who are part of this club. Um, and, um, so customer service team exists. People have moved from roasting to the customer service team before. And I figured I'm giving you far enough advance, you know, Right. Um, and basically they were just like, well, there are no positions open, so you can just work until you don't want to anymore. And then, um, we'll just let you go and then, or you can quit. And then when you come back, if there's like a production job open or something, we'll let you have it. That's fucking crazy. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, but this is like, I, I like worked for this company for years at this point too. It was, yeah, it was pretty bizarre. So I was like, okay, so my options are wait until I'm showing and then try to find another job. Who the fuck wants to hire a pregnant person, you know? Okay. So, um, my best option in my head was like, well, then I need to leave now. Right. So that I can find another job. Right. Yeah. This is my option. This is the, this is the best option. Um, so that's what I did. Um, and then I had a miscarriage Jesus Christ. and it like really tore me apart and I was having a really hard time with all of it. Um, because it was very much wanted. Uh, and I had gone through a lot of, I had never wanted to be a parent. I had sworn off kids. Never, ever, ever. I had this huge thing happen to me that was like such a revelation. So then when I decided to start trying and then I did get, you know, so it was just very heartbreaking as, as every miscarriage is every child loss in any way is just absolutely devastating um, or infertility. It's just, it's a, it's a messy subject. Um, but it was very heartbreaking and, um, I got pregnant again almost immediately, which most people were like, Oh my God, that's unheard of. That's amazing. And it is, don't get me wrong. Um, but I did not have enough time to process at all. So I was like immediately, even though like me personally, like I'm not a spiritual or religious person. Um, there was still this, like this feeling, this weird feeling of like, it, I haven't mourned this soul. And now I have another one that I, and it felt like I couldn't love this new soul because I loved the other one so much and it was gone. And now I have to be afraid that I'm going to also lose this one. And it was just, it was a tough situation. I'm so sorry that I'm getting into this. This is therapy. <laughs> you are absolutely right. This is like a therapy session. Um, anyways, uh, I needed money 
And because I was like, well, we're having a kid. I've got to figure something else out. Um, So I actually bypassed my boss at my previous job as a roaster, bypassed him. I went straight to the CEO and was like, I don't know if you're aware of like how things are being conducted, but this is what happened to me. And he gave me a job on the customer service team. (laughs) So I got the job um, and you know, maybe, maybe upset a few people in, in doing that, but I got to work with this fantastic, beautiful customer service team who knew almost nothing about coffee and realized that they had also been actively trying to communicate with the roasting team. I was unaware of it because there was a date there. Um, the one who also, you know, wouldn't let me have a job as a pregnant person. Um, but that, that gate was there. And so I was like, well, I'm on your team now. So y'all are all going to know everything there is to know. And so I literally started building out a curriculum just on my spare time because I was like, these people are so lovely. Why the hell are all of their like genuine and honest attempts to learn more about coffee being just totally shut down? It's so unfair. They are the ones dealing with the customers. They are the ones who are supposed to be showing our customers why they should be excited for these things. They're the ones who have the most impact on how much customers are willing to pay for coffee and um, how they view the stories. Right. And we're just denying them any joy in coffee whatsoever. We're just burdening them with customer service jobs without any passion involved. So I built out um, an education curriculum and through that, like really found a groove. And I was like, I think I might be good at this. (laughs) I think, I think I enjoy this. And everyone was like, I've learned more from you than any like cupping we've been invited to, because every time we come to a cupping, people are like, don't you taste the white grape and you know, milk chocolate. And they're like, no, no, we don't taste anything. We don't, it tastes like coffee. What are you talking about? Give us some information beforehand, you know? Um, so it was cool. It was cool to do that. And then I got offered a job um, with a co-roasting space um, as the person to build out their education program. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, it was honestly the best and shortest six months of my life. I was offered the position when my son was four months and uh, it was really scary, right? Cause I was leaving this really cozy customer service job, uh, insurance, work from home. They were really flexible about hours for me. Like they had pretty much let me like work nights and weekends when baby was asleep. I mean, just, I, I had a lot of autonomy. Um, and I left it because I was like, I'm going to follow this passion. Right. And I, I feel like I got to reach so many people in the very, very short time that I was there. Um, and I feel like I, you know, I'm still kind of doing that. Um, but when they decided to cut the education program, AKA me, uh, it's nicer to say education program than just 
they let go of me. But that was basically, it was like, they didn't want to invest in education anymore. They wanted to invest in other things for the business, which is understandable. Again, capitalism at the end of the day, when you're a business owner, business decisions. Um, But, uh, you know, I'm still getting to do that. I met color of coffee because of this. And so I'm getting to do the same thing through color of coffee. And that's how I found that was just because like seeing that, and I'm sure you've experienced this. Um, the first time that you give somebody a cup of coffee that they don't put cream and sugar in that you convince them to try without cream and sugar. And there's this like twinkle. Oh man. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful fucking thing that is. You know, it's such a special, special moment. I think I think a lot of the reason why, um, I've got a little philosophical on you. I think a lot of where that the infatuation with that twinkle in the eye comes from is like living life as an adult is really fucking hard. There's so many things that you have to deal with on a constant basis, and the simplicity from enjoying things is such a youthful and childlike spirit that it's in it's something that we lose as adults. So when we're able to find that and actually physically see it or physically like viscerally express it, it's something that you try and hang on to. You try and like constantly create scenarios where you'll see that on more and more of an occasion. And I could see why like (laughs) I could see why you'd love doing that because I've I've led educating classes. Like I said, I'm a Swiss Army knife for these people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've had a lot of those same interactions and same instances where people are like, they're thoroughly like oohed and odd from what you can kind of experience in just coffee. Or like, I had no idea coffee right. was. And to be able to do that on so many levels, too, you know, to be able to give somebody the confidence to go into a cupping. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's my, that's my shit. I have a, a sensory course that I run now and it's five classes and it, it kind of, it's my, from my experience, it's the things that I've learned in all different positions I've been in that were those moments for me. So each class is kind of um, an expansion on that moment. The moment that you learn about processing and the different processes and the way that they taste, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The moment that you learn about defects, the moment that you learn about the different um, acids and florals and that you're not detecting them so much by taste all the time, but by olfactory um, and by like the interaction that they have with your saliva. So just all of these times, all of these moments that I've had that personally, I kind of built this sensory class out to be that. Um, and I've found that it, it resonates with people in the same way. Like they get to have that aha moment mm-hmm. every single one. Like I have one class that's like um, one big portion of it is chocolates. Um, and like, I also really love giving things to people that are disgusting. Like, the defects class is my absolute favorite. Or you put a whole thing full of Quakers and you're like, drink it. Literally an entire cup of Quakers. You know? <laughs> like, oh, man. Just like, I remember I my first experience doing that, too. I was like, Ugh. oh, yeah. 
Like, oh, this tastes like popcorn kernels and fried chicken. Mm-hmm. Tastes like cardboard boxes. This is interesting. <laughs> I love it. Uh, yeah, no, I, I love doing stuff like that. But the chocolates class is fun because, you know, you're talking about mouthfeel when you're talking about chocolate. Mm-hmm. Right. When you talk about chocolate in coffee, it's like roast informs chocolate but there's there's still two separate things, you know, and I I love being able to give people different types of chocolate and then putting coffees that aren't necessarily of different roast. Maybe they are, you know, maybe it's a scattered roast for like got some dark and some light, but for the most part, keeping it pretty consistent um, and seeing them go from like, I do not know how to pick up certain chocolate flavors in this to tasting the chocolate, experiencing the mouthfeel, processing that information, and then going to a cupping and being like, that's milk chocolate. Mm-hmm. And like, Fuck yeah, it is dude. That's milk chocolate. You, yeah. <laughs> it could, if you wanted to say white chocolate, it could also be white chocolate, but this is what people are talking about. Mm-hmm. That dark chocolate is because it's tannic on your mouth. It's not sticking around. It's kind of like bitter. It's, you know, like and teaching people how to experience coffee in a way that's not just like, it tastes like this. It doesn't, it doesn't taste like that. It feels like that. It smells like this, it, you know? Yeah, exactly. I think, uh, to tie that all together, wow, this is such a synchronicity, like so much synchronicity. Um, <laughs> to tie that together, I think that honestly working in the food industry has only exponentially elevated my level of being able to communicate those things oh, yeah. to people. I've also worked in the wine industry, which also fucking helped when it came down to cupping. So I was like, oh, this is mainly like a wine tasting. Yeah, but yeah. a lot of the time it's just like the best way to tie things with um, coffee generally is to just incorporate food. Like I think it's just to break Absolutely. shit down that you would be able to basically right. coexist the two together so that people can have direct correlations. Like you were talking about like chocolate's not just a tasting note. Like sometimes you can taste chocolate, but half the time it's body or describing things in fruits. You can use it for sweetness or acidity. Like there's just like right where, right. where it falls. On the on the class that I do acids, um, I eat I pull up all of so I do like the actual organic acids kit, right? Mm-hmm. Which is part of like the cue, which I think is bullshit because that's not the way that we experience acid, right? The way that we as humans experience acid is with food. Right. That's how we understand yeah. acid is through food and beverage, right? So I pull out um, fruits and drinks like kombucha and coca-cola and olipop have you ever had olipop that shit slaps what is it it's like this probiotic soda drink that sounds like some healthy bullshit but you drink it and it's like drinking like a carbonated strawberry milkshake that sounds delicious it's so fucking good uh but you know it is a great example of lactic acid Mm. because it's Thin, it has no cream in it whatsoever. It's 100% vegan, but because of the um, the probiotics that they put in there, they're uh, they have that like lactic acid effect on the palate, right? So I bring all of these things to the table, and I'm like, this is a lemon 
this is citric acid. Mm -hmm. You can try the citric acid at that, you know, Q level dilution. But at the end of the day, like this is how you experience citric acid. Being able to tell the difference between lime and lemon is way more important or like, you know, lemon and grape is way more important than being able to tell the difference between citric and tartaric on a cupping table. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like we're not listing tartaric acid as one of the tasty notes. We're saying white grape, you know, and we're not putting that shit on the bag either. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, why are we expecting people to, to know these things, you know? Um, so that's what I, I love doing is I love giving people, uh, real life examples of something and then also like up against you know um because again i my whole brand i kind of wanted it to be like low-key like f uh, the sca type of you know (laughs) mentality that's like a big platform that i stand on um but yeah i mean you're absolutely right having having food knowledge is super helpful um in this because that's the way that we as humans if you're into coffee chances are you probably give a shit about food right and i'm not saying that like you're you know dining out like i eat chicken nuggies (laughs) (laughs) girl dinner happens way too often uh but you know I still appreciate good food. And when I'm making it myself, I'm conscious of, you know, the fats and the acids and the salts and the aromatics. It's sort of like a, a, a door that opens and never closes, you know? Like, <laughs> as soon as you're aware of it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's like this kind of acidity and like this kind of like sweetness. And then it's like mm-hmm. your mind is forever. As soon as something touches it, it's like the neurons fire. And she's like, don't you remember all of these really technical things that you're able to associate with different things because you've trained yourself? Because that's essentially what you're doing. You're teaching yeah. people to train to use those specific uh, keys and awareness, sensory driven things. People also yeah. don't understand the importance of smell with taste. Yeah. Like take away sense. Mind. Yeah. Like what you were talking about. Yeah. Uh, florals. When I do florals, um, I do the florals as just like regular, like tea light dilutions. And then also with a little bit of sugar, um, to kind of show the difference between like the olfactory sensation of florals, Mm -hmm. um, which is typically what you find in coffee. Like if you get rose, that's going to come from more of like a, you know, you slurp, you swallow, and then you breathe out through your nose, that's where that that rose, that black tea, those delicate notes are going to be coming from. But if you add a little bit of sugar into it, you know, that's that's what people are like expecting, right? They're expecting it to be like, you know, lavender syrup. But like if you've ever had lavender just diluted without any sugar, it's not it's not good. <laughs> It's, it's really fucking gross. Um, that's another one of my favorite things to give people is they smell it and they're like, oh, lavender. And then they drink <laughs> it and they're like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I want to see one person barf in this class. Um, <laughs> I promise I won't torture any listeners too much if you come to one of my classes. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, it's, it, it informs so much, like teaching people, like even just that, the olfactory thing to drink and then don't, then just like 
right after you swallow, breathe out through your nose. You're getting all of it on your entire, because your palate is in here too. Mm -hmm. You know, your palate's not just your tongue. I'm using, for the listeners who can't see my face right now, I'm pointing at my sinuses, (laughs) but uh, it's, it's, you know, in your nose, when you breathe out, you're like, you're expanding that palate, you know, and Mm -hmm. you're like uh, reaching parts of it that, you know. What's, also, once you learn these skills and you apply them to actual food, the in, the the experience when you had it before versus when you finally have that knowledge now is like you enjoy food a lot more or you either really don't enjoy food depending on what it is. But I mean, like I when I was able to I kind of did it backwards. So I started in food first. So when I was able to learn a lot about food and the cuisine and thankfully learned through different um, amazing chefs and then go through and learn about wine and learn about that and how it all like correlates this this full encompassed like developed palette essentially you you develop yeah. a palette and it's like amazing once you're able to kind of have an experience every time you eat or the experience every time you drink something you appreciate it absolutely. even more so yeah absolutely or um there was one time that uh my husband and I went out to eat and um it was a, a vegan restaurant they had clearly used too much liquid smoke in their mac and cheese oh. <laughs> you've ever had too much liquid smoke i have yeah it's it's real gross but i was like i was so intrigued by how awful it was that i literally couldn't even like the the hated joke the joke that every server hates like oh i bet you hated that huh when there's like an empty plate or like oh it was disgusting like that genuinely happened i finished it because i had to understand why i hated it I ate all of it just in this, like, it's so bad. I need to understand it. It was so weird. Um, and that was, I think that's like a, an interesting part of like palate development too. Right. Mm-hmm. It was like, you try something and you're like, Bleh. one more time, just, just for the palate. Yeah. I don't know what it <laughs> is. I don't know if it's just like a human thing where it's like, we're intrigued by like, like this sense of like morbidity or like, the the curiosity over trumps the actual experience as in like did that really just happen let me re-experience it again like i'll put myself through misery just to confirm that that experience was real um i took a a sociology class uh my freshman year of high school so clearly i'm a i'm a sociology expert but (laughs) the the teacher uh did the most insane thing for like a small town high school. And he literally brought a taser to class and let's tase ourselves. And Um, the whole thing was like, everyone who did it, you bet your ass they did it a second time. That's wild. Yeah. Every single person who did it, did it twice. Did you? Oh yeah. You did twice. Yeah. Was it as bad as the first time? It's both my boobs. Why? <laughs> because they, the taser is stronger um, where there's more water content. So it's electricity, man. <laughs> so I was like, well, I've got to. So I did one and then I did the other. Um, 
But uh, one guy, you know, did his his down unders and pissed himself, and that was great. But <laughs> man, what this happened year after year, dude. They never stopped this fucking. Crazy what the movie. fuck? That's <laughs> fucking hilarious. <laughs> oh no, that's great. Um, but you know, it 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 was basically that. It's like humans have to. There's there's this. Um, I mean, you know, there, there's some old school like philosophers out there who have been like pretty debunked. And I, I wouldn't say that I like am quite the nihilist I used to be. Um, Anthony Bourdain would be incredibly uh, disappointed in me, but <laughs> I'm not, you know, I've got a little more optimism in my heart these days. Um, but uh you know, when you like hear Freud and Nietzsche talk about suffering, you know, it's just like, it's there, there, it, there's a lot of truth to it that we as humans are, we kind of have to understand it. It's like when you're, when you're depressed or when you're sad, sometimes you just want to like sit in your like little suck hole, you know, which that sounds disgusting, but like, you want to, you want to like marinate in your pity, you know, just, I think that there's yeah. also like, <laughs> This po- this episode's this episode's so all over the place, and I love it. I'm so sorry. I was like, I want to I want to talk about philosophy and shit. I'm like, oh, um, <laughs> I think a lot of that also comes down to this like this sense of I don't know. I think every person's different, but like, how much willpower do you have to sit in the suffering, fully understand it, and then overcome it? There's like this sense of like a cycle that people yeah. love to experience is like this, this like I'll martyr myself for an experience to either fully understand someone else's position or fully understand the emotions that I can actually say that I've been able to overcome it. And I don't know. I, I, I'm not as eloquent about the subject right now, but, um, but I hear you and I, I totally understand there's, there's this like need in us to, it's like really dark. I'm going to try and find like a better position in this tiny ass little room. You mean you don't want to sit in your, your room and brood about nihilism and talk about Welcome <laughs> to my brain. Would you like to live in it? You can have it for like a couple days. It's dark in here. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you see my background, it's, it's pretty dismal and, and, and dark. <laughs> Uh, okay, let me see if I can find some box of shit that I have not unpacked yet to set this computer on. I will also uh, give this an opportunity to segue into it, the segment I had discussed earlier. So on this show, we talk about things, and obviously you can bring up controversial things throughout the course of the episode, but right. this is the point where we're going to talk about hot takes. So essentially, it gives you an opportunity to vocalize your hot take on the industry that could be or not um controversial so what would you consider your hot take Ooh, let's see let's see um this one is coffee industry and philosophy related so here's one I think that basic bitches are the hedonists of society and they've got it fucking figured out. You better divulge into that. <laughs> I want people to stop talking shit about specifically women 
who love pumpkin spice lattes and Uggs and (laughs) scarves because they found a thing, they liked the thing, and they refuse to let anyone tell them that the simple joys that they get to have from those things somehow diminish their intelligence or their humanity, you know? Like, I just feel like... Let people gotten, enjoy the things they like. Yeah, just like, you know, let the let the people enjoy what they like. I, unfortunately, was cursed with this need to always seem like I am um, smart and... Uh, just above everything like i feel like there are a lot of um like female identifying people who were um told that girly is wrong everybody's told that right but um and they they bought that they believed it and so they didn't let themselves indulge in those things that are just simple joys in life you know I think fem- I think femininity in general is just a very hard subject for women identifying people. Like I just think yeah. ident- understanding femininity and breaking that down is going to be obviously different for everybody, but it's the fact that society has put this idea that like this is okay and that this isn't okay. This is what it is and that this isn't what it is. And I think right. in general um you either really fucking hate pumpkin spice or you really fucking love it. And I think that like half the time people genuinely enjoy it and then always have to deny the fact. Yeah. Like I found out that I love pumpkin matchas. Fucking delicious. That's some basic bitch shit and I'm here for it. Give me an affinity scarf, a bedazzled belt from 2010 and let me listen to all time low and have a good time. Bro, I'm going to buy you a pair of Uggs. Send it. Straight to your door. I don't know where you live. Please uh, p- put an MCR CD in there too while you're at it. <laughs> I don't know if yeah, that's like good. just like <laughs> that's the time frame. That that yeah, time frame is I'm stuck in that time frame. Block. Um yeah, I mean I just I think that like uh we've over intellectualized hedonism into the this like um like it's got to be so niche for it to be a, a hedonist act, right? Like uh, kinky sex and like, I don't, there's just, there's so much like weird pretension out there about just like enjoying shit. And like, I don't know, the world's ending. It's literally on fire. Palestinian children are being killed by the thousands right now. Can we just can we just enjoy the like a drink? Can we just can we have that? Like can we just can we have that one thing? And um, I just I the the spiritual enlightenment of uh, the like I feel like it's it goes in line with like bimbofication, you know, like women who are like secretly incredibly fucking intelligent but do not care if they are perceived as Paris dumb. Houghton genius they're geniuses they're geniuses and we have i was i was one of them that was like you know i'm not like a dumb bitch you know and like when i'm saying something like that i'm 
thinking I'm comparing myself to these, these bimbos of our culture. And now I'm like, I want to play dumb. I find it funny. We're on opposite spectrums here. I feel like I grew up with the idea that women shouldn't be educated because mm. oppression in the Arabic culture. Mm. Um, and now the older that I'm getting, the more I'm like, oh, the worry I'm falling in love with academia. It's with, it's like <laughs> disgusting, unattractive and boring. Um, like I find myself like annotating Charles Dickens for fun. And I'm like, this is so much fun. I feel like I love it. And then I can't go and <laughs> And then I leave my house and I'm like, does anyone want to talk about this? Anyone want to talk about this? the same place here though. You know, we, we both, we've experienced the, mm-hmm. you know, we're just on different <laughs> sides of the street. It is almost 9 PM here. Um, and I just hear my, my husband giving my baby a bath. Oh yeah. We're at almost eight. So. And I've realized that we have been talking about so many different things. I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. I have too. Like, you're a fucking awesome person. You're so genuine and you're so heartfelt. And I love your attitude. I love the fact that you love Anthony Bourdain. I love the fact that we can trauma bond and kind of just bond in general over similar, like, occurrences. And my love and respect has exponentially grown from this past subject we were just talking about and it's just like i keep finding my people that i love and they don't live here <laughs> doesn't that just like fucking man, frustrate me the other day and it went so well because it was like not even a job interview the dude and i i was just like why the why you gotta be in seattle dude i don't yeah. know no <laughs> some of my favorite people just don't they don't live here and I, it's like damn it sucks that you live in texas yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. Fucking sucks that I live in Texas. <laughs> well, was there anything? Yeah. Um, well, what were you gonna say? ADHD. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but was there anything else you'd like to say before we log off? Um. Well, first and foremost, thank you. I'm actually not one hundred percent sure how you found me or how I came up on your radar. Um, so I am curious about that. Number two, I'm actively looking for a job right now, like a full-time job because this baby eats more than I do. Not exaggerating. <laughs> it's like a very real, very, he put down two bowls of chili yesterday and I was like, Damn, What's dude, his name? Bellamy. That's a cool name. Sounds Thanks. Victorian as fuck. I fuck That's with what it. I was, I was like, I want it to be like Anne Rice. Like, yeah, it's given that. Fire, you know, that's what, I was, that's what I was going for. Not a big fan of those books, but. Mm. You know, I haven't read the books. You can put that in the, the hot takes. Ah, uh, love that. The new interview with a vampire, though, the show. Mm, I've watched mm. it. You did? Yeah. But I've also read the book. Okay. Yeah, I didn't. I just watched it. And um, like a former, like, you know, emo girl who, like, whose first introduction to porn was, like, gay men, you know? So watching that was just like. Insert Pikachu shock uh, meme. <laughs> but, 
Why wasn't this on TV when I was a kid? (laughs) (sighs) We had to use our imaginations. Yeah, man, anime. Just read a lot of anime. That was was the way around it then. Vampire anime. Lots of homoerotic shit there. I hope that makes it into the podcast. Do you know how much shit hasn't made sense in this whole fucking episode? (laughs) We're fine here. You should uh, wait till you hear the, the next episode that comes out. Talk about going off the walls. Um, but. Um, okay. Okay. Back to, back to the things. Um, back one, to hungry children that needs to be fed. Yes. Um, hungry children who need to be fed. Um, but yeah, I'm actively looking for a job. So if anybody in like the Austin, Texas area is looking for someone who does a whole lot of things. Needs some consulting work. Yeah. Wants to take some classes. Needs a roaster. Needs someone to help them set up their production facility. Let your girl know. Because I am for hire. And I have a very, very hungry baby. (laughs) Um, Use the baby as leverage. Yeah. Man, he's cute, too. I take him places. I like, you know, he's been in a bunch of my classes with me. Almost every event, you know. It was just me and him. He's my little sidekick for the longest time. There's like footage of me like talking to people at an event and I'm like breastfeeding him while talking. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he's, he's, he's been around, man. He's gonna be, I have a little toy espresso machine for him. It's his favorite toy. He doesn't know what he's doing. It just makes good noises. That's cute. (laughs) Well, um, to answer the first question, the way I scout people is actually a really interesting process. I, I get this quite often. It's like, how did you find me? And I'm like, extensive digging. Extensive like digging. <laughs> I'm just like, I spend a lot of time, because I do all the recruiting and, and the introductions and doing the social media and everything. And obviously, like, my producer is great. Um, but, yeah, I, I saw that you had post I read your first post and I was like damn she's got a lot of fucking experience doing shit I bet she's got a lot of shit to say and then when I scrolled down the comments I saw Bailey and I was like yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I oh, loved talking to Bailey too and I was just <laughs> like yeah she's probably really cool so I just reached out and half the time I always just throw the ball into in the court and see if anyone catches it and I was just like oh cool it makes me happy when people want to be on the show so yeah, I, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have this conversation. And, you know, to tie it all back, I think that this is what coffee is supposed to be. Is it supposed to be, I had as a little budding liberal in a tiny conservative West Texas town, one coffee shop. And it is where I met people who open my eyes to things out gay people in a small town like that very seldom met them there um any other liberals philosophically minded you know it was it was a gathering of the intellectuals were we actually that smart probably not but it really felt like it you know and it it became a place where important conversations were had and there weren't computers and we were talking about things that mattered that were bigger than us. And that is what coffee, that is, that is what coffee has always been for me. So even if this went off the rails, this is 
so 100% the shit I'm down for. Like if I were to ever open a coffee shop, which will never happen, um, it would be a place where hopefully things like this would happen where young kids to come in and see themselves reflected, you know, and Mm -hmm. learn about things that feel taboo to talk about at home or like are too criticized on the internet, a place where you can like, there's like books on the table. And if you don't have anything to do, fuck it, just pick up one of those. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like coffee shops have always made that for me as well. When I was in really bad situations, it was like a place, it was like a meeting spot to kind of like have like this almost like quiet sanctuary of confidentiality too sometimes. Um, But I am going to log off now. Yeah. Um, I love talking to you. I, talking to you. I would love to meet you one day. Yeah, we'll get we'll, we'll do it there. <laughs> Somewhere down the line. <laughs> but um I don't be a stranger. You are okay. welcome to talk to me anytime. I really enjoy okay. talking to you. And same. And also watch the bear and share with me the books that you read. I, I like also read- have stuff off the off the rail that I want to talk to you just personally about that you were talking about in the episode. That I'm like, oh, this is going to be a good person to talk to about things. It's about kids. It was about that. Oh. Okay. Um, oh. Yeah, got it, got it. Yeah, that's a that's a big one that has to be off the air because. <laughs> yeah. Like- no. <laughs> but um okay well i'm gonna log off it was great talking to you i can't wait to talk to you soon um and i hope you have a great rest of your evening you too and i hope that uh you can be like the basic bitches and find just a little ounce of peace tonight Thank you. Maybe have a really nice cup of tea and like watch a garbage show or something you know my my comfort show is buffy Oh, that's a good one. It's a good comfort show. Watch some Anthony Bourdain, you know? I don't know if that's a comfort show for you, but... It's bittersweet. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It is hard to watch. It does kind of hurt every time it turns on. Okay, we're going to keep talking if I don't cut this shit off now. Because, yeah, this is this is a scenario where I could probably talk to you for hours and not get bored. Sorry, I talk to a one-year-old all day, so like human interaction <laughs> and human interaction is just like really uh, <laughs> okay. All right. all right, you have a wonderful night. I wish you uh, peace and love, and I'm sending as much as I possibly can to you. Um, not just because of the times that we're in, but also just because you're a rad fucking person. You're doing cool things, and you deserve it. So. <laughs> listeners if you can see her face right now <laughs> i'm very expressive <laughs> but thank you so much um i'm glad that i will say this just like a disclaimer and then i am going to log off um i'm genuinely happy that your second pregnancy went well and that your son is healthy and that you're doing okay thank you thank you yeah one year Woo. year Fucking crazy, man. Okay. Well, have a good night. I'll talk to you soon. Yes, ma'am. 
This episode has been a, a whirlwind of high emotions, I feel like. It was a very emotive episode from her story and how she got to consulting and, and creating her business, which she says she doesn't own one. Creating her, her brand and then to the level of Anthony Bourdain and then politics. I didn't expect the, the subject to go that way. If we're taking a human approach to all of the roster that I've had on the show, this episode has been my favorite to converse with and to just hear their story. Like, fuck. Her story is wild. And she dropped so many interesting, like, tidbits. We went through so many cycles of conversation and it was somehow always able to reconnect back to coffee and the industry that we work in. I loved the segment of her talking about education. I think it's a really digestible approach to what she's trying to teach. I think her personality shines in this episode for people to want to be interested in learning more about coffee and teaching others. I think that as a human being, she's got a beautiful soul and she's friendly and she's just like so approachable and it's just this effortless line of communication of rambles and, and shit and I just love I just love her as a person like I would want her to be my best friend and I, I am probably gonna like be like hey I got stuff to talk to you about and I watch the show so it's like even cyber friendship is something I'm gonna strive for So now that the episode's been concluded, there is a point in the show um, on tonight's episode where we talked about some really heavy and triggering content that are happening in pol uh, world politics right now, um, specifically with Israel and Palestine. I wanted to place this on the end of the episode for people who were wanting to hear more on the subject, um, hear a opinion not purely based off of hardcore facts, just informative learning um, with some invalid dates, such as me having listed the March of Return on 2016. It was actually from 2018 to 2019. And then having discussed um, a book, Against the Loveless World was the other book that is a great read that's really appropriate for the time right now. Um... And Sadness is a White Bird is actually a great side-by-side -side read that I would recommend many people to read um, with the current events that are happening. Gives you a good duality of a Zionist soldier versus a Palestinian woman. And um, obviously it's based on fiction and historical events, so keep that in mind. But this goes into a discussion very openly and very candidly on a pro-Palestinian conversation. So if you are sensitive to being towards a pro-Palestinian um, verdict towards what's happening in politics right now, you're welcome to not continue listening to this. However, if you're wanting to educate yourself vaguely with more interest on educating thoroughly after this, I would recommend to continue listening on. Um. Yeah. <laughs> But coin, you girl, know? when you started talking about Palestine, I really was like, Ooh. I'm sorry. I know it's touchy, but it's my I've spent uh, a little too much time crying about a lot of the shit that's I don't think you understand that the position that I have been 
in um, with this too. I'm not Palestinian. Okay. I'm Iraqi. So it's like, obviously this isn't affecting my people specifically, but right. Arabs are Arabs. We're, we're, we are all part of the same. We're cut from the same cloth, just different colors, different places. And it's like, it, it fucking, dude, this shit's wrecking me. Like my mental state is fucking down and I feel this, this, this helplessness that I can't contribute and the voices of reason are non-existent and it's just like, it's like, how, who do you trust in these situations? You know, you can't trust literally anybody. But yeah, I've also been really highly emotional and sensitive towards what's happening over in Palestine and Israel. I'm so sorry. It's there there aren't words. Yeah. And I'm not Arabic. I'm, you know, born and raised in America, right? the country that is helping to fuel this war. Right. Right. And it's just, there is a helplessness. This, these, this entire, all, all of the Palestinians are, are in an open air prison. Right. And, and the air is the, the place of attack, you know? And it's just to see the, the rhetoric that like, well, you know, Hamas committed an atrocity, a terrorist attack. And it's like, have you been looking at any live footage? Yeah. Numbers for, yeah decades now right i mean like honestly like i have done so 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 much extensive research on this subject on just the the beginning of the state of israel Mm -hmm. and i have found so much frustration with trying to educate people on this subject and a lot of it is just it's just like people are unaware of the the power of what white colonialism has done on a, on the Western society, let alone what it's doing towards the Palestinian people. Like it's ethnic cleansing. They're in an apartheid. They're literally killing off. They're, we're sending the largest warship over to assist the state of Israel. Hamas is not composed of a military defense. It's a group of rebellions you know it's a rebellious group of people from palestine you're going to infiltrate like 80 to 90 people with a whole fucking army like that's not an agenda that's just to control the situation there's an ulterior motive but it's they're doing exactly what they're intending to do right right just to demolish more than just the 80 or 90 yeah rebellion that's a rebellion their their intention is to and you know it's you, you know, you look back at World War Two, and, you know, Israel was so much, like, created um, as a, like, Germans being, like, 
oh, we're going to help the Jewish people and give them this, you know, and like let them have. And so a lot of uh, like German and European descendants are like afraid of being anti-Semitic by criticizing Israel, you know, because it was like, but look at what happened here. And it's like, we can talk about atrocities without that having a role in this. Right. You know? It's like ethnic cleansing, apartheid is what it is, what it is. Like there's no, you don't have to have these like qualifying factors to like, um, Politics shouldn't be emotional. They're the st- they're a law. Like there there are things in place that make politicians tend to be very cold hearted. But when you are able to apply politics in a way where it's helpful, understanding international law and how that applies to people and how it's being manipulated, how it's being abused. Like these people are de- de- denied the the ability to resist they're denied the ability to have human rights these are against so many things that run in politics in the state of palestine like palestine itself they don't have a defense mechanism they don't have a defense yeah like they, the they building can't fucking leave either it's right. not like oh, well you don't like it here then leave they can't even they can't they leave. can't they can't infiltrate israel they don't have israeli passports like they can't even enter a part of their own land can't go anywhere like and then like you know egypt is right trying there right and then they're like we're gonna bomb you if you decide to leave and uh we're gonna bomb egypt i'm like bro meanwhile israel's getting backed up by all these different n- nations to come and assist this blatant holocaust reincarnation there have been people right. who have been victims of the holocaust that have spoke against what we're doing to palestine yeah. there are jewish people that are against the state of Israel, like, and have... Which just goes to show that this has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. Nope. Because... This comes down to, like, racism. Yep. And that's kind of fucking it. White supremacy. That's what it is. It It has nothing to do with anti-Semitism or with, you know... I mean, we can say that it's religious, but it's not, you know, we can, we can, I think religion is a. Well, here's the uh, thing about Palestine too, before state of Israel became what they are, um, the oppressors, basically Palestine consisted of Christians, Muslims, and Jews coexisting. So mm-hmm. it's not the fact that they aren't capable of coexisting. They were Jewish Palestinian people. However, Zionism has right. changed Judaism. Jewish people are just as fr- frustrated with Zionism because that's not what the Torah is preaching. So it's right. just like conflicts of interest. There's conflicts of like church and state should never fucking exist. Like it's just, it's also really funny because when I have these discussions with people who are pro Israel, and their only defense against Israel has to do with the attack on Hamas. That, yeah, that's all. That's I'm like, you have no backed evidence of what Israel has put on the Palestinian people. You have no evidence as to counter. You need to counteract. You can't just be like, well, I'm not going to trust people who are killing children. I'm like, there's literally no evidence. 
Israel stated that there was no evidence that they were beheading children. There was no evidence that they were raping people. Right, right. That like, has yet to be shown. But there are them. past Zionists, past Zionist soldiers who have been documented with the apathy of laughing and claiming they have killed and caged people and raped children and done all this. But that's not being showcased, right? Like the narrative isn't being showcased where Israel's this villain. It's yeah. just Arabs are barbaric people and we're condemned to be these horrible people because media wants to paint us this killer, this picture, everything. And from being Iraqi and having needless, endless suffrage and war that is written in my people and my culture, like I... There's there's only so much you can do when you're backed up in a corner. I and I love to give this this example of what would America do, like with the politics oh, right. that have lived lived since Trump. Like imagine, we yeah. would go into riots. We would we would we have gone into riots. We have brought up arms. We have had people of radical opposition threaten Our other people. Founding principles were those of escaping extremism in religion like we came here as a rebellious act and And then we oppressed a whole other nation we annihilated a whole other nation and then we decided to gift them reservations like i love the idea that if like if a native americans decided like we're going to revolt and we're going to basically do get the fuck out of our country and you have to pick a side i'm like i'm i'm fucking siding with the native americans here yeah. I'm a guest on your land. Take what you is, want. I live on native land. This is not... Literally. This isn't my home. And I'm mm-hmm. not going to treat it like I own this place. Are you fucking yeah. kidding me? Ooh. See, I grew up in a house where um, my grandfather was an Iraqi diplomat for the Iraqi embassy before Saddam Hussein got into reign. So I've grown up in, in politics my whole life. Right, um, and you, you've seen this from... Well, he was my grandfather, so I wasn't like alive then. But he has taught me many things when he was alive about war and about politics and about the importance of being educated. And I think that's also where this like love of education comes from. But um, like... The way politics in general, like I I read this book that's a really good book and great timing for what's happening in Palestine. It's called, um, fuck, I'm not going to remember it. Something about amongst the universe or something. It's, it basically is, it's telling of a lot of Palestine when it was going through the Nekba, which is that the first before this, the first real like type of ethnic cleansing that was happening and the bombs and, and the massacres. And it was told in the perspective of a woman basically just trying to survive. And, um, politics, because the Arabic world has only ever known war and has, has ever known like violence. That's all that there is to talk about. Then that's passed down. Generational trauma is real folks. It's passed down into generations. A lot of Arabic culture, it is segregated in terms of who speaks on who hopefully that's changing. I don't know, but the men, all they would do is gather around, have coffee, treats, tea, and talk politics. That's a part of our culture because that's all we had to do when we were trying to survive. We tried to understand, we tried to know motives. We tried to know the next step. So like I grew up in this, this idea of like no politics, understand what's being talked about contribute. And like, 
Well, and also just a like, will I ever be safe? Yeah. Well, this, I mean, generational trauma is absolutely real. And I was, I was actually going to ask you about, you know, how that's, how that's affected you because oh God. You have your entire lineage be so oppressed yeah from, from so many like this is you, there's not a singular group religious group or country or nation like literally the entire world right. has oppressed the arabic people and it i i can't imagine trying to navigate a world that has tried to consistently annihilate your culture and your families and your beliefs. I, I, I well, I can tell you right now, uh, this isn't a bragging thing, but there was a poll that was taken of the angriest countries in the world. Iraq is up on there. I think we're in one or two. Arabs are ang- like, we're, we're done. We're just angry. We're frustrated. And it's yeah. like, we, we have pride. We have pride in our people. We have pride in our culture and our heritage. We have contributed so much to civilization. And it's like, the narrative is wrong here. I have watched generations of people of different Arabic ethnic backgrounds refuse to talk about things out of not wanting to re-experience that like i don't think my grandfather ever talked about saddam and what it did to him because he was he left when he became in rain and i don't know how much about iraq's history you really do know but has saddam when he became president went on the committed and he went to his to his people and he was like if you're either for me and, and you're not and if you aren't I will kill you. And essentially he didn't like, he didn't stay. He was one of the few people that was able to get away and leave. And it's like, um, it's really interesting when you talk about Iraqi politics too, but that's a whole different thing. But, um, watching what's happening in Palestine is just, I'm not paying attention to the Western news. I'm paying attention to what I can find that these people, when they have accessibility to internet are able to upload and be like, this is what's happening. Are you aware that this is happening? And it's explicit. It's horrific. Like it's horribly graphic. The things that you're able to see, but like everything is exposed. Now we're living in an era where you cannot have a narrative be one way. You have evidence now. There's Mm -hmm. evidence now that you can see these children covered in ash, unconscious, they're burned, all these things. And blown to pieces. And it's there. It's in front of you. Yeah. And they're and they're mourning these things. Vocally, physically. You're watching you can see dead animals scattered across rubbish from the fucking bombs. And then you go and you see Israel and it's fine. The casualty rates are not that bad. And then you see like these people in Israel, the Palestinians left being displaced from generations of homes. Their, their shit's being thrown on the streets. 
and the people who are being displaced having nowhere to go and the the people that are moving in laughing at them apathetic to them and they th- those are grandfathers and grandfathers great grandfathers who have been born and raised in that home and it's just like infuriating because it's like can you imagine like can you imagine like building a home and having the idea of your whole lineage legacy living in that home and then that home being just demolished it's just it's it's heart-wrenching and it's the Palestinians aren't asking for much. They're asking for the right to leave Gaza. They're asking for the right to have their own defense, their own state. They're, they're, they're asking for basic things that all of us that have this established take for granted. And it's infuriating when I watch videos in America, like I watched a New York City protest about Jewish, like, is like I don't know what to call them, so I don't want to label them. But they're people who are openly and blatantly holding up the state of Israel flag, and are screaming "fuck Palestinians," burn all the Arabs, demolish Palestine, flatten it like a parking lot. And I'm like, these are people here, and I'm like, I'm sorry I'm quiet. No, I mean, like, it's just, it's frustrating because how, how it just doesn't make, it doesn't make sense how people can focus on just the singular, the singular attack. Hamas, Hamas was, it broke, it did huge things for the history of the revolution for Gaza, for Palestine, with bulldozing the border for the Gaza Strip. Yes, they did send missiles and they bombed innocent civilians. However, imagine 75 years of that same thing happening. The life the life expectancy is probably so short. The age rate for people, like the average age rate is 18 in Gaza. Imagine dying at 18. Like that's the average rate. Yeah, like that's just, that's what our life expectancy is. But, and, you know, I think a big thing that is uh, like a comparison that, you know, could easily be made is that it's like, you know, rioting is the language of the oppressed yeah so we can talk about this attack by hamas as a terrorist attempt or we can talk about it as what it is which is an act of defiance have you have you also ever met an oppressor that was civil or peaceful (laughs) Talk about, like, think about it. Like, there was a video that resurfaced really old, like, black and white. I don't know what time. And I obviously forgot the name of the Palestinian activist. But he was asked in an interview, why can't you guys be peaceful? Like, why can't you guys just have no violence? And he asked, he's like, have you ever met an oppressor who could just sit down and have a conversation to their oppressed? And yeah, have, right. And, and, be and like, sit. Doing yeah, and be like, so this is our solution. No, you can't. You can't just talk civilly. You, you, at some point, you have to respond to violence with violence when you're backed into a corner in this way. You have to speak the language of the people 
who are literally murdering you and your families. There's like, also history on Palestine for an occasion where they tried to be peaceful. I don't remember what it's called. I think I want to paraphrase it and say it's the return of the march or march of the return, um, where for every Friday of a whole year, year and a half, a lot of Palestinians marched against the border fence of the Gaza Strip, demanding peacefully to just break down the, the border. So they, for a whole year and a half, were just walking around it, asking and screaming and, and doing what we would do here for different movements. And then they were met by being murdered. So it's not like there hasn't been peaceful events that have happened yeah. for the Palestinian They've people. Attempted that doesn't work. I don't care what anybody has to say about the subject. You can never persuade me to to ever be against a Palestinian. I've always been pro Palestine for like my whole life. Palestine, and I will say this so confidently, being an Iraqi person who has so much history in war and and it having such a fucked political world palestinian people are some of the strongest courageous survivor mentality people i've ever met in my life they can get through anything they are resilient they have the strength of their whole heritage behind them and it's beautiful to watch that their spirit will never die I don't care what you fucking do. You you destroy a whole nation in Palestine. You got a whole nation of Palestine here. They'll rebuild that shit. It's it's a it's a beautiful thing, and it's horrible what's happening. Well, it's sad when beauty has to come from pain and atrocity, you know. And the first video that I saw that showed what was like actually happening in Palestine was this father holding his baby and he's like, he's praying and he's talking and he's mourning and he's, he's, but he's not hysterical. And at first I just thought it was a hurt baby. And then you realize because the videos are graphic, you know, because what's happening over there is graphic. And a lot of the like translations of there's been a lot of those videos of fathers like holding their children, their lifeless children. And their their words, the things that they are saying are not those of someone who is about to give up. And that was something that struck me because I'm a, I have a one-year-old, you know, and a bunch of these fathers were holding one-year-olds and it like, you know, affected me differently than it would have prior to having a child, not to say that, you know, my, yeah, my I see what you're saying children and i yeah it's hard to it's easy to mince words in in that context um but you know in my head i was like i would just be done like i would just be done i I don't know what i would do i would be done 
And you're, this is, you know, for, to go off of your point of like the resilience, the resilience that someone has to push forward because they believe in the justice and the liberation of their people is something that like my privileged ass will probably never understand. You know, that my first thought was if I had to hold my lifeless baby's body that I would probably just go to forever sleep. Um, that's a privilege, you know? Right. And, uh, a very unfair one that it's like, it is now on the backs of the survivors to continue and try to fight for the justice. A lot of, of a lot of the Arabic um, that they're praying to is, and they're they're sort of like obviously experiencing shock, but it's sort of like this 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 state of trance of saying, I my my daughter my son my husband my wife are being martyred for the cause and like they're praying to god to help the cause and that it's sort of like this repetition that like it's painful like i can only imagine what that's like but d- like despite gaza being in rubbles right now there are people that are like this will never kill us and it's just <sighs> hey, if you need a break from talking about this, I hope that yeah. I don't No, I mean like I think it's important I'm that sorry. we are No, 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 no. I I think it's important to talk about it, especially cuz it's like it's important that people understand why pr- people are pro Palestine. I think everyone, I think in this world, everyone has an opportunity to educate themselves and figure out what side they lie on. I just think it's important that you really disconnect emotionally and look at the facts and see what's happening. And it's just like, that's why it's like, after everything that I've been reading about seeing and and everything, like, and I've talked to to people who are pro-Israel, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what. But I do, I do want to kind of close this segment because <laughs> yeah, I feel like we could probably talk about this for way too long. And, and um, I think at this point, um, I can only just pray for some type of progressive movement with Palestine. 